everybody. This is Anthony from Texas Blues Alley. This is the second episode of the podcast that I started last week. Uh, at that time, it didn't have a name. This week, it does. We'll talk about that. And um, I had something I was going to talk about, but I think I'm going to put that off for next episode uh, because I can't do that and question and answers all in the same episode. It would get too long. So I think this one, I'm just going to do Q&A while I wrap up what I want to talk about next time. First off, a couple notes about the podcast itself. Uh, for right now, you can go to texasbluesalley.com slash setlist. And that is where you can find uh, episodes of this. Uh, if you're not familiar with the section of the site called the setlist, basically, the setlist is kind of like, it's not just the blog, but it's basically where you can go to see an overview of everything that happens around the site. So, you know, we've got different sections like the woodshed, old tone zone, the stage, and each section has different types of content that are that are added to it on a somewhat regular basis. And uh, rather than having to check, you know, three different sections and six different subsections for everything that's new, uh, the set list is kind of like the central place where, you know, if you were visiting a, an actual place called Texas Blues Alley, uh, the set list would kind of be like the uh, community bulletin board at the entrance to the alley where everybody who has new stuff posts information about it. So that's kind of what the set list is. And this podcast is now called the Setlist Podcast because it's going to be kind of a companion to whatever else I add to the setlist. So it's kind of like, um, you know, community overview of the entire site. So anyway, texasbluesalley.com slash setlist, and you'll see all these episodes in there. I'm working on setting up a dedicated show page where you can go just to see episodes of the show, but that's not done yet. Uh, and then one last update about the first episode uh, where I emotionally rambled on about the uh, the barn for about 20 minutes. Uh, I mentioned that I'd have pictures posted. So the first episode is posted on the set list uh, with pictures of before and after and uh, some additional details. So you can go check that out. TexasBluesAlley.com slash set list and you'll see it listed in there. One more note before we uh, get into the question and answer. Um, I want to start recapping what's just been added to the site and what's on deck uh, for those of you who like to have some idea what's coming. So uh, last Friday, I posted a free lesson Friday uh, on the song Bold as Love by Jimi Hendrix. And uh, there's this fabulous, fabulous lick that he does in the middle of the solo. Um, he does it one way in the kind of official version of the song, uh, but then there's an instrumental version that he recorded in Olympic Studios. A little bit harder to track that one down. Uh, but I love how he played it in that. So that's what this free lesson Friday was on. And then uh, on deck, uh, I'm working on a song guide mini course for The Wind Cries Mary by Jimi Hendrix. And whenever I do a song guide, I try and pick a song that has some sort of interesting twist to it. And if I can't come up with what I feel is an interesting twist, something that I can turn into three or four lessons... Uh, then I just move on and try and find a different song. But I think that I found something interesting to focus on with The Wind Cries Mary. Uh, so I think that's going to make a great course. All right, so let's get into your questions here. When possible, I'm going to credit the person who asked. Uh, sometimes if people don't include their real names in their Twitter handles or whatever, I can't do that, but I will do it whenever possible. So the first question comes from Robert, um, I think it's Macapu or Mick. 
McCabe or something like that. Uh, his question is, um, I keep my Fender amp on a tripod. Uh, I think he means an amp stand. And it holds the amp tilted back a bit. Could this damage the spring reverb over time? I'm going to say uh, I don't believe that it will damage the reverb tank. Because if you think about it, regardless of which way the amp is oriented, the spring is suspended in air. It doesn't. There's nothing about having the amp straight up that supports the string more. It has to be uh, suspended in air in order to vibrate the way that it needs to be uh, to give you the reverb sound. So when your amp is sitting straight up and down, uh, your spring is hanging with gravity pulling that way. If you tilt the amp, it's pulling a different way. Uh, I'm going to say I don't think that's going to damage it. Of course, I you know I don't have an, a degree in reverb tank maintenance, so you should probably check on a forum or with an amp tech just to be sure, but I'm going to guess that that's probably not a problem. Uh, Andy Patterson on Twitter asks, uh, I've been playing chords and scales for years, but I can't break the licks barrier. Suggestions. Uh, I love this question because it highlights um, the fact that there's many different ways that people go about uh, learning guitar. Um, So in Andy's case, he's been playing chords and scales for years. So I'm going to guess that he learned through a fairly traditional teaching method because that's typically what uh, you get taken through. Uh, I did not learn that way, and uh, my learning path was basically... Uh, here's a Stevie Ray Vaughan song I want to learn. Let me dive in and bang my head against the wall until I've learned enough of it to satisfy myself and then move on to something else. Um, One thing that I've become aware of over the years that I've done this is that there is a school of thought that says you should not try and play licks. You should not try and play other people's solos. I don't think that that's where Andy came from, but uh, there is a school of thought based on certain kinds of musical styles that people want to play where they actually try not to learn licks that other people played. Um, and again, that couldn't be more different than how I learned. Nothing wrong with it. It's just a different approach. Uh, but if if you're in any situation where you know a lot of chords and scales, you got to think about why do you know those chords and scales? Well, it's because you learned them and you practiced them. So there you almost don't even have to think about it anymore. They're just there. Uh, in my experience, the way that I learned, it was the same way with licks. The reason I can so-called improvise while I'm playing is because for years and years and years, I just sat there with my face buried in a CD player, learning as many solos as I could, note for note, getting down to the exact same phrasing and everything like that. Not just because I wanted to be able to play that exact solo that way, but I wanted to learn everything from that solo that I possibly could. Uh, I wanted to learn why Stevie or Jimmy or, you know, I learned plenty of stuff from Kenny Wayne Shepard too, why they put certain licks back to back. Why does that sound good? Why does he switch from this box to this box over this chord change? And uh, the only way I knew how to do that was just to learn what they played and play it until it became second nature. And then eventually when I got to the point where I was playing with a band or playing along with a backing track, I noticed that licks that I had been studying for years just kind of bubbled up into my short-term memory out of my subconscious about a half second before I would play them. Uh, So as I get ready to go into a solo, I'm not thinking of making up a lick. 
I'm listening for whatever my mind comes up with for me to play there. And what kind of bubbles up into my conscious part of my brain comes from whatever I've spent years and years and years practicing and learning and embedding it into my muscle memory kind of. Um, so that was a long-winded way of saying if you know scales and chords but you don't know licks, then the obvious solution as far as I'm concerned is to invest an equal amount of time learning solos and learning the licks within those solos and then trying to reproduce them on your own, mixing them together, and then just developing that process of listening for the solo in your head a few, you know, half a second, quarter of a second before you actually play it. Uh, that's one of the greatest skills I think you can have to improvise is just to be able to hear what you're going to play right before you play it. Hope that makes sense. Uh, next question comes from Mike Marabies on Twitter. He says, would you recommend lefties to play righty? He said, that's what I have always done. Lately, feeling like I would have been better off if I hadn't. Uh, I think what he's saying is that he's a lefty, but he started playing righty. And uh, I believe I already answered him on Twitter, but I wanted to include it here because um, I try to be pretty open-minded about a lot of stuff and to understand how limited my own experience and viewpoint is. But on this point, I can't imagine why anybody would recommend a natural lefty to play right-handed. Maybe in an era where left-handed guitars were harder to come by or the world was more biased towards right-handed players, that could maybe there was some practical use to that. But these days, I have no idea why anybody would recommend it. I certainly would not. Um, and, and here's my rationale for that, is that for me, guitar playing is a huge release. It is, uh, it's like therapy. And... Uh, to the extent that playing guitar feels like a struggle and feels like work, the less I'm going to enjoy it and the less I'm going to want to do it. Uh, it is hard enough to learn guitar when you're playing according to your natural handedness. So trying to fight what feels natural in terms of something as basic as which hand you pick with and which hand you uh, fret with uh, that's just an extra barrier that's going to keep you from enjoying playing the instrument, I think. Uh, so no, I would never recommend somebody do that. Now that you're there, I don't know if I'd recommend that you go back. Uh, that's, yeah, I don't really know what to say about that. Uh, here's a question from um, somebody that goes by Chance Rubbage. <laughs> I don't know what that name means, and he didn't have his real name, so that's just who it's from. It says, how many watts should a bass amp have to balance with a deluxe reverb and a drum kit at a small, minimally mic'd gig? So there's some important details. There is a small gig, and there's not much of a PA. And he's wondering, how many watts should a bass amp be? Um, trying to figure out how I should answer this, because you don't evaluate bass amps kind of the same way that you evaluate guitar amps. So if you... Look at guitar amps, especially in the tube amp world. One of the things people ask a lot about is how many watts do I need or how many watts is going to be too many. And the reason they're asking that is that if you want to crank up the amp and get a nice overdriven tone out of it, it's going to be much easier to do that at acceptable volume levels with a small amp that's 15 or 20 watts or less. If you're at a gig where there's a good PA system, this doesn't matter quite as much. Um... I have found that when you're playing a small gig, even with a good PA system, 
it's good to have a guitar amp that uh, is at least 15 watts, preferably 20, because you'd be surprised how quickly you run out of clean headroom with even 20 watts when you're playing with a loud drummer, even if there's a good PA system. Uh, but we're not talking about guitar amps here. We're talking about bass amps. The reason I talk about guitars is because with guitars, there's a very strong emphasis on watts because watts have a direct correlation to what kind of tone you can get at what volume level. With bass, it's a little bit different because for most kinds of music, you're not trying to overdrive the bass amp. You're trying to do the exact opposite. You're trying to have nice, solid, crisp bass at the appropriate volume level. And just because of the way that sound reproduction works, it takes much more power to reproduce bass loudly and cleanly than it does uh, a mid-range and treble frequencies. Um, Because it's a longer wavelength, the speaker has to move more. You need much more power to move those big speakers to produce those sounds. So I wouldn't focus on minimum number of watts. I don't know how bass amps are priced, but... I would say get the most powerful one you can afford um, because just because it has that many watts doesn't mean you have to use that many watts. So let's say you buy a monster 700-watt bass amp. You can still play that thing at whatever volume level uh, is appropriate for the gig, and you're not missing anything because you're not using all 700 watts. What that basically means is if you strike gold and you get booked at a concert hall or something like that, your amp's still going to have enough uh, power to give you good, clean volume at that. But if you, I don't even know if you could buy a bass amp that's less than 50 watts, but I have a Bassman 50 amp, a Fender, with a 2x12 cabinet. And I'll tell you, you don't get much clean headroom out of that thing for bass. I mean, it does not take long for that bass to get kind of soft around the edges. I would just look for a bass amp that's, you know, a couple hundred watts and within the price range that you want. Um, and I hope that addresses the question. It's uh, with with bass, the you almost can't have too many watts uh, because, again, you don't have to play it that loud. But if you don't have the wattage, you might get stuck where you, you can't get the amount of clean headroom that you want. Next question comes from Andreas Schaefer on Twitter. And he asks... Uh, he asked a question about using the grip with small hands. Uh, when he says the grip, what he's talking about is that thumb over the neck grip that you see Jimi Hendrix use, uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan use it. Pretty much most of the famous blues and a lot of famous rock players use that grip. And uh, I actually call it the grip in my series of lessons called Essential Techniques. And uh, one of the questions that has come up a lot since I put out that series in 2009, 2010, is uh, people with smaller hands having trouble using that grip because, I mean, you watch Hendrix play, his big thumb could drape over the top of the neck. He could practically fret notes on the A string with his thumb. His hands were that big. And a lot of guys that don't have hands near that size have some trouble. So I actually do have some good advice for this. Uh, the first thing I'll say is that dexter- not dexterity, flexibility and hand strength can go a long way. Um, they can make up for a lot of things because if you have smaller hands, positioning of your fingers is going to be a lot more critical than people with long fingers. You may have to find some angles that other people just take for granted 
And in order to hold those angles, you're going to need a lot of strength. So uh, strength and flexibility in your hand can go a long way. Second thing I'll say is that the grip is not just something that you use for chords. So in my course called The Grip, uh, if you're not familiar with that course, I'll have a, a link in the show notes for this. Uh, the kind of test that I use and the exercises that I give are based on fretting an E-form chord using the grip. And that is kind of a worst-case scenario. And the reason I base my exercises around that is because that's one of the most challenging things you can play using the grip. But uh, using the grip in your playing is not contingent on you being able to do that perfectly. So the grip has many useful characteristics. Number, you know, One example is uh, when you're bending notes, having your thumb over the back of the neck gives you something to push against. Uh, having your thumb over the neck gives you kind of an anchor point for certain kinds of vibrato. Uh, have, wrapping your fingers around the neck like that makes it easy to do muting for certain kinds of raking that you might do. Uh, so there's lots of benefits that don't depend on you being able to play an E-form chord perfectly. Uh, so don't, if that's the main source of the trouble, don't let that stop you from trying to use it for other things. Now, I will say, though, I believe there is a certain threshold below which it might be really hard to use the grip for playing certain things. And for me, that litmus test is if you put your hands at the fifth fret, if you bar the E and the B string, the, the two highest strings, if you bar those with your index finger, uh, don't bother reaching for the G string there, but just you know, fret those two notes. If you can wrap your thumb around to the point where you can fret the low E string to the point where it rings out clearly, then there's a lot of things that you'll be able to use the grip for. But if you can't quite get your thumb to fret that low E string cleanly, while you bar those two notes, then yes, you're going to run into some problems playing certain kinds of chords and everything with the grip. You'll still be able to use it for different soloing things, but a lot of times when I'm fretting a, a, a note on a low E string with my thumb, uh, those are things that you might have to play with a traditional grip. The good news is there's not much that you can play with the grip that you can't play with a traditional thumb-behind-the-neck grip. It's just that using your thumb over the neck gives you definite advantages for certain kinds of raking sounds. Um, another thing you'll run into is that without being able to mute things with your thumb on the low E string, you will have to use more muting with your picking hand. Uh, so the fat side of your picking hand resting on the bridge or just in front of the bridge uh, on some of those low strings is something you'll have to use more. All right, next question comes from David Cohn on Twitter. He says, how do you dial in the tone controls of your amp? That's a very generic question, but also one that uh, it's almost good that it's generic because if he had asked, how do you dial in the tone con controls on, I don't know, this specific amp, that might not actually be quite as useful. But just a general question, how do you dial in the tone controls? My basic approach with any amp that I play is this. First of all, I set the bass level to an appropriate point because where your amp is sitting, what room you're in, you know, where your amp is sitting in the room, 
I like the bass to be noticeable but not overpowering. Um, so I like a nice, crisp, low end, just enough that I can hear it, not enough to muddy up the signal. Uh, then if it's a two-tone control amp, just bass and treble, then I set the... Um, I tend to like my amps pretty bright, but I start with the treble at about half and listen to it relative to the bass. And I try it and get it just to the point so if I really dig into my high E and B strings there and I do some Albert King-style plucks, you know, I want to hear a certain snap, but I don't want it to be shrill. I almost never use the bright switch because that emphasizes a an area of the frequency spectrum that I don't find that... Uh, complimentary to the kind of stuff that I play. Um, but then I just kind of go from there, and it, and it varies a lot from amp to amp. And, of course, it's affected by what pedals you're going to be using, too. So I'll definitely test it with whatever pedals. Uh, but that's typically what I what I go for is um, I like a nice, bright, crisp sound that's not shrill, so it doesn't hurt your... you got to try a couple different things. you got to try some chords. you got to try different pickup positions. So I set the treble as bright as I can get it, without it ever sounding shrill or harsh based on certain things that I play. Uh, and then the bass I set so I can notice it, but it's not muddying up the tones. And then if you've got a mid-control, you've got a lot of different things that you can do because, um, you know, for certain things, having the mid scooped a little bit uh, is nice. But other times, um, having a lot of mids in your signal can can give you uh, more cut through itness, especially if you're at a show. Um so that's just my general approach. I can't really answer it more specifically than that. Uh, Brian Salcedo, I think I'm pronouncing that right, uh, asks, do you still use the Meccano wah? Can you recommend any other wahs? I actually do use that wah, and I have one other one I can recommend. So I don't like wah-wah pedals that are very subtle. I like um, nice expressive wah. So the other wah that I would recommend would be the Joe Bonamassa wah. Uh, I think it's made by Dunlop. The reason is is that that has a distinctly different um, sound to it than than some of the other wahs that I've played. It's much much more expressive. It might not be everybody's cup of tea, but I like it. Uh, as for the Meccano wah, when I first got that from Mike McConaughey way back in the day, I did something stupid and I went in and started fiddling with this circuit and I forgot just how badly I screwed this thing up. And so sometime last year, I sent it back to him because he had an update to the circuit he wanted to do. And uh, he showed me pictures of what the inside looked like. And I was embarrassed because I could not believe the level to which I had mangled this thing. Anyway, he uh, he fixed all the things that I screwed up. And he did his updates to the circuit and everything like that. And I got it back and it sounds great. I mean, the thing just... It just screams. So he really knows what he's doing uh, with those wah pedals. I definitely can recommend them. Um, they're definitely more expensive than than an off-the-shelf wah that you get, but you get a little bit more leeway in terms of customization when you work with a, a small builder like that. Uh, last question I have here before I head into the Twitters to see if there are any others came up. Um, this is from Eric Sander. Do you remember when you were first introduced to or heard SRV, when, where, and who. I actually do remember it, and it is vividly recorded in my memory. I was working at um, Claire Brothers Audio, which is a professional audio company. I think they're the largest in the world right now. 
And uh, what's funny is that they're based out of uh, Lidditz, PA, which is right near Mannheim, Pennsylvania, where I was born. And uh, so I got to work there during uh, summers away from college. And it was my first summer there. I guess this would have been the summer right before I go to college. Yeah, because I worked there four summers, so I would have started before my freshman year. And uh, I worked in the uh, speaker department. And uh, so the way things work there is that they have a wood shop where they build these fabulous high-end speaker cabinets for touring, you know, acts. And then they come to the speaker department. We load them up. We put in custom, you know, woofers and horns and all this other kind of stuff. And then they go to the paint department. And it was it was a fun job. But we had a room called uh, the Boom Room. And uh, when you're putting out speakers that are going to go on tour for months at a time, you need to make sure they're going to be able to handle the volume levels that are going to be required of them. You need to make sure that somebody didn't leave screws inside that are going to rattle or whatever. So they take them into the boom room and they just, just crank them up. And this was a heavy insulated room. Um, so it could be, I mean, you had to wear hearing protection in there when they were doing this. Um, but this is that's where they would test the speakers, and they'd really push them to make sure they're going to hold up. But when we weren't testing speakers in there, we would put on music, and that would be our music for our department as we worked throughout the day. And um, there was a guy named Matt. I don't remember his last name, but Matt was like the um, he was like the epitome of the rock star roadie. Because we had guys who just worked at the shop, and then there were guys who were professional roadies. They would go out on tour. And in between tours, they'd just kind of come back to the shop and do whatever to kind of wait until the next tour went out. And Matt was one of those guys. He had you know long ponytail, had stories from being out on the road. Super cool guy. And one day, he comes into the speaker department, and he puts on this CD. And you got to understand, this was the summer before college. I had literally just gotten my first electric guitar and was still trying to figure out what I was going to learn to play with this. I was probably trying to learn some Guns N' Roses stuff. The only blues music I owned, oddly enough, was an old Muddy Waters album. Like, I'm talking old, like pre like definitely not like the 70s stuff with Johnny Winter. Like this was old school Muddy Waters. Um, and I couldn't really sink my teeth into it yet, but I could feel an energy there that attracted me. I just wasn't sold yet. So I'm there at Claire Brothers this one day working on speakers, probably putting in fiberglass insulation into the cabinets, you know, probably not wearing a face, face mask like I should have been. And out of the boom room comes this screaming sound of blues guitar. And they played the album twice through. And I was just sitting there thinking like, and I just kind of said it out loud. Because the guys knew that I had started playing guitar. You know, by this time they knew that. And uh, I remember saying at that point, now that... That is how I want to play guitar. And then I asked who this was, and they said, well, that's Stevie Ray Vaughan, and the album was This Guy Is Crying. So this would have been like 95. Stevie was already dead. I guess This Guy Is Crying album came out within the next few years after he died. 
And I just remember the sound of that song, This Guy Is Crying. I remember how that guitar sounded. And my only thought was, that is how I want to play guitar. Now, because I was um, a little bit of a cheapskate back in the day, I didn't like run out and buy any of his CDs. I just kind of went to college. And luckily, the guy that I roomed with my freshman year was a big blues fan. And he introduced me to Eric Clapton's From the Cradle. Um, and so I kind of forgot about Stevie for a little bit. But then later in that year uh, is when I watched the Live from El Macambo DVD. And, uh, or not DVD. <laughs> what am I talking about? This is 95. I rented the VHS. <laughs> Somehow they had the VHS of that show at my local video store. And I rented it while on break, and that was like the turning point for me. From there, it was pretty much all Stevie and Jimi Hendrix and Albert King from that point on out. But I still remember that day at Claire Brothers when he put on that CD, and we listened to the whole thing through twice. And so that was the first time I ever heard Stevie Ray Vaughan. All right, I got a few more questions that came in here on Twitter. Uh, one more. <laughs> okay. Chris Lissio, the maker of my favorite slowdown app, Capo, uh, his question is, what saw blade did you use for cutting your laminate floor? <laughs> That's a great question, but I can't tell you because I paid somebody else to do that. <laughs> so that was their job, not mine. Uh, yeah, so it looks like uh, that is all the questions that I have for this time. Hopefully there's something in there that's useful. I do want to do one shout-out, though, at the end of this one. Uh there's a guy named, uh, what's his name, Shane Diorio or something like that. Uh, on YouTube, he goes by In The Blues, all lowercase, youtube.com slash In The Blues. And uh, Shane has been putting out uh, gear demonstration videos for years now. And um, just a note about his gear demos, he does a lot. Being in Australia, he has access to different kinds of pedals than, than some people do. Um, but unlike a lot of gear demo guys, he does an inordinate amount of demos using really budget-friendly pedals, like a lot of Joyo stuff. Um, I can't remember some of the other brands, but uh, you know that kind of stuff doesn't get much love from the gear demo guys, but Shane uh, is kind of like uh, the working man's demo guy, and he demos a lot of these pedals, and because he's a great player and uh, he knows what he's doing with recording, he makes them sound as good as they possibly can. So uh, I commend him for that. And uh, the thing I mainly want to promote is that he uh, put together a 49-minute video uh, that he's calling kind of like a documentary on gear acquisition syndrome, uh, GAS for short, which is kind of like the running joke in the guitar community. And uh, he went to a guy that he knows in his somewhere in Australia who has a really impressive collection of amps and pedals and just kind of geeked out for about an hour talking about where these amps came from, uh, whether he sells anything he ever buys, whether he uses all of this stuff, if there's anything he regretted buying, a lot of the questions that we ask ourselves. And so I just wanted to give him a shout out for that. Uh, I'm going to have a link to that on the show notes for this page. Uh, so you can find this episode just at texasbluesdally.com slash set list. And this will be episode number two. And so all the links to stuff that I mentioned in this episode are going to be there. And uh, for the next episode, episode three, I am going to tell you the story behind why Texas Blues Alley came to be, why it's called Texas Blues Alley, 
and the process that I went through shutting down Stevie Snacks at the height of its popularity uh, to start something new. It's a story that I haven't ever told before, and it's going to be kind of therapeutic for me to be able to finally tell it. So uh, until then, thank you for listening, and uh, I'll see you next time.